Second Thessalonians chapter three. This evening we'll finish our study here in this book. Second Thessalonians chapter three. We'll move to the book of Judges next Sunday night. So I'd encourage you to read the passage that we'll be studying. I encourage you that often, but that's why I hand out those quarterly sermon schedules so that you can know what we're going to be studying together. You can have an idea of what we're going to look at before we come together. It would do your, you would do yourself a great service just to have a familiarity with the passage before you come. Maybe ask some questions about it and see what kind of things are answered and what kind of things God uses uh, the preaching of His Word to, to help shape your mind and, and your, your will and, and your emotions. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 14 through 18 tonight. Have you ever taken a long trip in your car and missed an exit because you weren't paying attention? Or you got into a car accident that could have been avoided? Or you went the wrong way on a one way street or ran a red light? Or have you ever fallen asleep? Why do we do that? Well, Lots of ways we can answer that. I mean, we're humans, and so we're finite, and we're going to make mistakes. But a lot of these can be avoided, right? Some of them just because if we have enough sleep, we can avoid these things. Or if we have enough coffee, we can avoid some of these things. Or it could be that, that or we're just distracted. We're thinking about something else when we should be thinking about the road and where we're going. But do you realize that even if we had plenty of sleep, we had no distractions from someone calling us or something. We would still make mistakes on the road every now and then. Missed our exit, go the wrong way, into an accident, fall asleep. Those, those things will still happen. You know the best way to avoid these problems? Is to ride with someone else who is alert. Um... I don't know how many times that Jennifer's helped me to stay awake or avoid the wrong exit or stay in my lane when I wanted to get over because there's somebody in my blind spot and I didn't see them or slow down in treacherous, treacherous conditions or park properly. That's one that I often tease her about. She doesn't like how I park. But, um, you see, uh, we need someone who is alert because we are finite and we're going to make mistakes when we drive. And especially in long trips, when we get lulled into a sense of security or just just kind of a mundane, monotony type thing that's going on. And the Christian life can be very similar to taking a long trip. It's easy to get lulled into a sense of security as if, you know, i got everything under control. I can do this. We stop, you know, being attentive while we're going through the Christian life and we kind of just sit back and just kind of rest. When, you know, we're driving a machine down the road that could kill someone or kill ourselves and we have to be careful, we have to be guarded, we have to be alert. And in the Christian life, we need to be alert. We need to have passengers so to speak, who ride close to us in the drive of life, who will watch out for spiritual potholes 
and warn us of the brake lights that are ahead that could cause us great damage. That will help us to keep focused on the main goal, to going in the right direction, to getting to the destination safely. And so we need to make sure that we have relationships, particularly close relationships within this church that are marked by what the Scriptures teach. Otherwise, we can get into that sense of, that false sense of security and monotony like we have everything under control. We need each other for this, for this Christian life. In, in chapter 3, verses 6-13, through 13, Paul had warned the church about being idle. If a man refuses to work, then, then don't allow him to eat. He must not be allowed to eat is the idea there. He spent some time talking about his own example and his previous instruction, and I would guess that some actually listened to his instruction and repented, and I hope that was the case. But Paul goes on because he recognizes that there may be the possibility, and there's very likely the possibility, that some will not repent. And so what is the church supposed to do when he's commanded them to turn away from this wrong behavior, that is, willful unemployment, And what is the church supposed to do with someone who's like that? When we see people in sin, our tendency is to ignore it. We don't want to be involved in conflict. We just kind of hope it goes away. You know, maybe we look back to our own lives and say, I was involved in some some sin before, and thankfully God, by His grace, changed me, and so maybe He'll do that for them, so I'm not going to do anything about it. But the Holy Spirit has something else in mind than us ignoring it. Particularly when it's unrepentant sin. This is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about you know, people who just struggle with normal sins. I mean, we ought to be encouraging those types of people. But what we are talking about is unrepentant sin. They're living in willful disobedience to what the Scriptures have clearly told them not to do. Or clearly told them to do and they're not doing. So let's look at the text together and see what the Holy Spirit would have us to learn from these last five verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. This is the Word of God. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. And do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. For the sake of purity, we must take action against a disobedient Believer, for the sake of purity, who must take action against the disobedient believer. Verses 14 and 15, Paul makes his command very clear. Notice to whom we are talking first, to whom Paul is talking. Look at verse 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So what do you think Paul's talking about here? Is he talking about a believer or an unbeliever? A believer, right? Look back up to verse 6. Now we command you, brethren... Okay, this is the church that's obeying. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother. Here's the one who's disobeying. From every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition. So, it is possible, we talked about last week, that Christians can actually fall into disobedience. Is that true? Yes. It's true for every one of us. We can fall into disobedience. And I'm thankful that we have a church that cares about obeying Christ's commands. So much so that you're willing to come and approach me when I have fallen into disobedience. Now this one specifically, Paul's saying is a disobedient brother, and he's one who doesn't obey the instruction. Look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, then take special note of him and do not associate with him so that he'll be put to shame. Well, what does all this mean? What, what does this mean? Is it some kind of shunning? What do, we, what do we need to understand about this? What is Paul teaching us here? Well, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to show you two other passages on how we handle what we call church discipline. We talked about this morning in our spiritual success class. Okay, but what Paul's talking about in the Second Thessalonians is different than what he's going to say here in 1 Corinthians 5. See if you can notice the difference. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, I want you to notice that word associate because we're going to come back to that idea. This is the only other place it's used in the New Testament. Not to associate with immoral people. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate, there's a third time it's used, it's the only, uh, the only other time it's used, with any so-called brother. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or idolater or viler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, so Paul's talking about more drastic action than he's talking about in Second Thessalonians. Here he's saying that when there is a person who makes a profession of faith, a so-called brother, did you see that in verse 11? A so-called brother, and he's living an immoral life, what are we supposed to do? Do not associate with him. And then the end of verse, verse 11, don't even do what? Don't even eat with him. Okay, so this is more drastic than what Paul's going to call for in Second Thessalonians. But I, w- I want you to see that Paul uh, has various actions that he expects the church to to do when it comes to unrepentant sin. Here, this person has already shown himself to be an immoral person and is not to be associated with. Turn back to Matthew 18 because here's the other passage that talks, that teaches us about church discipline. This is from Jesus Himself. Before the establishment of the church, which happened in Acts chapter 2, Okay, so Paul was talking about an unbeliever in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about a brother, remember? He says, warn him not as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Okay, Notice in Matthew 18 how you're supposed to treat a person who makes it all the way to step four. There's four steps here when a brother sins, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That's step one. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Step 2, verse 16. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Step 3 is in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Step 4 is in the next line. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so how does Jesus describe these people who have made it to step four? They're living like unbelievers, so treat them that way. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. They're living like unbelievers, so treat them that way. In 2 Thessalonians, we need to understand that there's a difference. Warn him as a brother. The sin that, 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 that they committed, that is willful unemployment, in 2 Thessalonians 3, apparently did not um, identify these people as unbelievers. Instead, it was just kind of a blip on the radar of the Christian life that you know occasionally people are going to fall into sin and they need to be warned. Let me read the rest of this passage here in Matthew 18 while we're here because I think it helps shed some more light on the church's responsibility in church discipline. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So, we tend to use verses 19 and 20 and talk about prayer meetings. You know, if two or three are gathered and Jesus is there, we can be confident that Jesus is there. We can worship Him. We can pray to Him. Whatever we ask, He's going to do. But actually, I think it's connected to what's going on in verses 15 through 18, which is church discipline. Verse 18 talks about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So, in some sense, the local church ought to be representative of what's going on in the universal church. The universal church is just all believers from Pentecost, from the time of Pentecost, all the way till the rapture. And God knows who are in and who who is in and who is out, right? And the local church ought to be a representation of that, a perfect representation, ideally. Sadly, we're we don't know everyone's heart, and so we do the best that we can. But what Jesus is saying is that when two or three are confirming this, that's what verse sixteen talks about. And then again, he uses that idea of two or three in verse 19. Then, then whatever you bind on earth, when you remove somebody from earth, and that's representative of what's going on in heaven. That person is excluded from life in the body. They're not a member. They're not a part of, of the church. Now, obviously, there are um, times when Christians can be not a part of a church, maybe removed from a church, and then in a time of sin and then need to be called back to repentance. But in general, how the church disciplines should be representative of what Jesus sees in heaven with regard to the membership of genuine believers. Turn back to Second Thessalonians because I'm going to argue in Second Thessalonians that what's going on here with Paul is actually step three of what Jesus was talking about. So step one, go talk to him. Go tell the brother of his fault. And then he refuses to listen. If he listens, it's great. He's restored. He's back into the fold. That's great. But if he refuses, then you take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Then if he refuses again, 
then you take it to the church. And that's what I'm suggesting is happening here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me show you that here in verses 14 and 15. Notice the three things that these that this church must do. There's three commands that they must do. They must uh, follow through on. First, they must identify Him. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Identify Him. It doesn't mean we put Him on a name put his name on a list or you know, put him on the bulletin board on the back. This person's been marked out as, an, as a disobedient. You know, but, but rather, it's identify him in your minds. You've seen and heard about the sin that they've committed and that they're not turning from their sin, so you need to identify them. second thing is to withdraw from him. Verse 14, second part of the verse. Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. The Greek word from which we get our word associate can also be translated do not mix up with. Okay, The idea of fellowshipping, don't fellowship with him in a, in a close way. It's the same word that's used, remember, in 1 Corinthians 5. Do not associate with an immoral person who's a so-called brother. But this doesn't mean to, to completely disassociate with your, yourself with them. That is, never have any contact. You know, I, I'm not going to talk to you ever again. And the reason that we know that is, look at verse 15, look at the end of the verse, but admonish him as a brother. The, the idea there is to warn him as a brother. How do we warn somebody if we've completely disassociated ourselves? We can't ever talk to you again. No, we, we still have responsibility to warn them and so that that it it's something that that is falls short of step four in Matthew eighteen. Step four is to remove them from the church. So we need to we need to identify them and not associate with them, withdraw from them to a place where where they recognize that the things are not right. The church here knows of the sin and is now using the relationship with this person to speak to that person. Try to call them back to repentance. So in other words, every conversation that we have with this person ought to be to try to encourage them to come back. That is, come back to obedience. Now once a person comes back to obedience, you know, this relationship is restored. There's fellowship. There's love. But this is talking about a person who's continually living in this disobedience against God. And in that case, we don't associate with them. The only time that we talk to them is to try to encourage them to, to repent. This disobedient is given notice about his sin. That's the point of, verse, uh, of step number three that Jesus gives. You're given notice about your sin, and if you don't repent, you're going to be removed from the church. Now notice the purpose of our withdrawal at the end of verse 14. So that he will be put to shame. So that he will be put to shame. The ultimate purpose of this identifying and withdrawing from is not to punish. The goal is, just like it is in Matthew 18, it is to restore them to fellowship. It is to see them repent. So what does the shame look like? How do we make them feel shame? Is this like a shunning, you know, in the Amish communities? 
And when you know a person is disobedient, an Amish person walks into the store and get a battery for their cell phone. For some reason, they can use cell phones now. And everybody just kind of turns around and we're not talking to you. They don't say anything. Is that what Paul's calling for here? Truthfully, it's hard to understand exactly what Paul is calling for because he doesn't say. He doesn't give explicit instructions on how we not associate with him, how we put them to shame. But what we need to keep in mind is that we are reading about an ancient Near Eastern culture that very much valued the community, unlike us. Okay, we do, hopefully, but, but in general, our society doesn't value community. We are an individualistic society, aren't we? I mean, a lot of the movies that you're going to watch today is about one man or one person just dominating. It's taking over. It's all about me out of my American dream, accomplishing my goals. And yet in their culture, to be a part of a community was part of their identity. And so if you were removed from the community, much like many of the Near Eastern cultures are today, they would live a life of disgrace, wouldn't they? People in China and things like that, they, they just they can't go on with life if they've been shamed by their community. And so the threat of losing fellowship in this culture was very serious. For us, I think that it means we must not treat the disobedient person as if everything's okay because then we're just condoning his actions. And so don't associate with him. That's what that means. But at the same time, look, notice verse 15, at the same time we have a responsibility to associate with him. So don't associate with him but at the same time, associate him in order to do this. Look at verse 15. Yet, or but, at the same time, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, Paul's going to give a command. He's going to say, warn him as a brother. That's his main command here. But before that, he starts with this phrase in verse 15. Don't regard him as an enemy. Why would Paul begin that way? I think the tendency for us when we see someone else in sin is to kind of just be turned off to that person and fully abandon them. But here's what Paul wants the church to know, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to know. A disobedient believer is not our enemy. A disobedient believer is not our enemy. We need to remember that this person has been bought with Christ's blood. And Christ still has the power to change that person, doesn't He? So, don't treat Him as an enemy. That's the temptation. You know, they've they've sinned. Wow, that was a big one. Now you're my enemy. No. This is a brother or sister in Christ, and we want to see Christ restore them. And so they are allies. They're on our side. We're on their side. Here's the main command at the end of verse 15. Admonish or warn him as a brother. So, I want you to get the sense of what's going on in verses 14 and 15. Don't associate with him, but at the same time, warn him. So when you associate with him, use that as an opportunity to warn him or her about their sin. 
And if we do this as a friend, then then he is more likely to change. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The wounds of a friend. Aren't you thankful for the wounds of your friends? They come along and provide something for you that's temporarily painful, but you recognize over time, sometimes not immediately, but that they're actually looking out for you. That their pain is not the pain of an executioner's whip, but it's more like the pain of a surgeon's scalpel, isn't it? They're trying to take out something that's harmful for you. We may have bad feelings toward the surgeon for causing us pain, but that bad feeling toward the surgeon should only be temporary when we recognize what they've actually saved us from, what they've rescued us from. The wounds of a friend are like that. They can be painful for a time, but we're thankful for them over time because we recognize that they're for our good. They may bring shame, but ultimately we expect that they'll bring repentance on our part. This is one of the hard things to do as a Christian, to approach people in their sin. People who are living in unrepentant sin, disobedience, we as Christians need to be willing to do the hard right thing in a gentle way and be willing to to wound our friends in order to protect them. And that also means that we need to be willing to accept their wounds, accept their blows, so to speak, when they see sin in us because we know that it's ultimately for our good. Our tendency is to ignore the situation and to do nothing and hope it gets better. But the Holy Spirit is calling us to do something very active here. It is to warn them. Warn this brother, this friend of their sin and their need to repent. And shouldn't our greatest goal for our brothers and sisters in Christ be to see them in in good fellowship with Christ and His people? Now, you might be thinking, well, this this fellowship, this, this association, this warning of a brother is, man, this is really unloving. And it's uncalled for. But notice the authority that we have, verse 6. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. That you don't associate with them, except in order to warn them, I think is the idea there. We have the authority, verse 6, of the Lord Jesus Christ to act in this way. It may seem more compassionate to do nothing to someone who's living in unrepentant sin. But the most loving thing that we can do to another person, specifically here to a disobedient believer, is to point them to the truth. And the truth is this. If a person is living in disobedience, they need to repent. Specifically here was the sin of willful willful unemployment. Now, maybe you're thinking 1 Peter 4.8 says love covers a multitude of sins, so maybe we should just ignore all these things. But that's not talking about believers overlooking every sin. I think that's talking about believers covering over the sins that have been resolved. 
yeah, when there are resolved sins, we've gone to our brother and they've repented, we ought to just drop it. We ought not to bring it up. Love brings up or keeps no record of wrongs, right? First Corinthians 13. We don't keep coming back, you know, maybe it's you with your spouse. You just have this long list that you just keep going back to. Remember that one time? Remember? Love doesn't do that. And that's what happens in the church. We don't keep bringing up all these old things. Airing the dirty laundry. No, if it's been resolved, it's done. It's passed. It's over. We've learned from it. We've moved on. That's what I think 1 Peter 4 is talking about. It's talking about resolved sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins that have been resolved. But in cases where they haven't been resolved, here's what we ought to do. We don't associate with that person. The only time we do is to warn them. Paul gives his concluding remarks in verses 16 through 18. He does it three ways. First, a prayer, then a personal greeting, and then a benediction. Prayer in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. This church here in Thessalonica had been going through some serious doctrinal chapter 2 and moral issues, chapter 3. And so a great way for Paul to end his letter to them comes through his pen when their soul is just in great turmoil because of all the challenges that they're facing. And he says this, May the Lord of peace give you peace. And they may have the peace that only Christ can give. Sometimes in the midst of all the correction that we're affecting, you know, we see this sin over here and we need to handle it. We see this sin, we need to handle it. There's just so much turmoil in us, and we think that we're the ones who who are bringing about peace. We're the peacemakers, and in a sense, God is using us to make peace. But what we need to recognize is what Paul is praying for: that Christ is the giver of the of peace, isn't He? It's Christ who affects this peace in our midst. Remember John fourteen, twenty seven: Peace I leave with you; my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give it to you. Notice how extensive this peace is, this prayer is. Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace. My text says, in every circumstance. But literally it should read, at all times and in every way. Anybody have a translation that's similar to that? At all times and every way? ESV? Alright, all times and in every way. That is, without interruption and in various circumstances. Not just in this one situation, Thessalonian believers, do I want you to have peace, but in all times and in every way, Christ would grant you peace. And then he finishes his prayer at the end with, The Lord be with you all. At all times and in all ways, the Lord be with you all. No matter what kind of conflicts you face as a Christian, you are never alone. Do you believe that? Christ is with you. He wants to give you peace as you pursue obedience. Paul then gives a personal greeting in verse 17. I, Paul, write this letter, or write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Paul often dictated his letter to a scribe so that he can concentrate on what he's saying, what he's thinking about, and the other person could write it out. Apparently, in shorthand, he was able to do it. And then Paul would take over at the end of a letter in order to write his little signature, so to speak, at the end. 
because he wanted people to know that this was an authentic letter from him. Why would that be important? Well, remember, there were people who were um, suggesting that Paul had written them another letter, and they were supposed to believe that in chapter 1. And Paul was saying, listen, uh, chapter 2, I think it is, you need to make sure that this is from me. And here's one of the ways you can tell. I have my distinguishing mark at the end of every letter. And then a benediction, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Sometimes we read these benedictions at the end or maybe you know, at the beginning, same idea. Verse 2, chapter 1, grace to you and peace from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is kind of like a monotonous... Um, uh, Ritual that he just kind of just says these, maybe a canned prayer wish. Paul's just kind of filling space. It's something that kind of falls out of his mouth. It's a normal phrase that he uses. But Paul prays for grace for them, just like he prayed at the beginning of the letter. That when the people of the church of Thessalonica encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, that it radically changes them. And they need this grace. The great hymn, Amazing Grace, has a line... In one of the verses that says, This grace has brought us safe this far, and grace will do what? It's going to lead us home. We need this grace from beginning to end, and this is what Paul prays for. And he doesn't just pray for one or a few people who are involved, but all. Grace be with you all. Three points in closing here. Number one, the Christian life is all about Christ likeness. The Christian life is all about Christ likeness. I don't know about you, but to me, the idea that you as a church, a congregation, would ever remove me from from your fellowship is scary. I don't ever want to be in a position where you as a church are warning me about the credibility of my salvation and the testimony that I am uh, affecting on Christ's name. And what we learn is that the most important thing you know, we, sometimes we can overcomplicate the idea of godliness. What is godliness? Is it, you know, is it some kind of ethereal thing. I just got to feel it. It's very simple. It's all about obedience to the Word of God. Look again at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, here's what Paul's looking for. You want to be godly? You want to be Christ-like? Just obey the Word. Just do what it says. You're not going to have any problem with the church coming to you about unrepentant sin because you're seeking to obey it. Now, maybe they come to you, but you're going to be happy to repent because your desire is to obey God in everything. A person who is who has that kind of attitude will never be excommunicated from a church. A Christ-like person is one who simply obeys God's Word. Number two, there's nothing better for your spiritual growth than to be a part of a local church where sin is hated and where righteousness is exalted. There's nothing better for your spiritual growth than to be a part of a local church where sin is hated and where righteousness is exalted. Greg Bonson is a former pastor and apologist. That is, he, he defends the, the faith. He's deceased now. Died in his 40s, I think. But he used to do these debates with some uh, skeptics, some atheists and things. And he said, you know, the, one of the most difficult questions, I think the most difficult question I've ever come across 
in my work in apologetics, defending the faith, is this. Why don't Christians act like Christians? Why don't Christians act like Christians? He says, you know what? I don't have a good response for that one. The only thing I can come up with is this. It's really tough for me to answer why Christians don't act like Christians, but I can tell you that at our church, Christians who don't act like Christians are disciplined out of our church. Friends, do we care about disobedience? Do we care about disobedience in our own lives, in the lives of other people in this church? Let me encourage you to cultivate close relationships with people in this church. Allow yourself to be a little bit vulnerable. Be willing for someone to get so close to you that they can see your faults. And then, when you pursue this kind of relationship, tell this friend what your intentions are. I want you to help me grow spiritually. I want you to help me see the blind spots that I can't see. I am prone to become comfortable in the Christian walk. And I need someone who's alert alongside of me. I need someone who cares about truth. And I want to help you in the same way. I want to be alert with you. I want to be your passenger seat driver as well. Will you allow me to do this? Will you allow me to enter into this kind of relationship? It's so much easier when we go into a relationship with that, that is an openness of a vulnerability and a willingness for people to look into our lives and to ask us some pointed questions. So so much easier when we allow them to do it than when we kind of just you know, close up and just just become very isolated. My parents early in their marriage talked about some of their goals for for us as as their children. My dad, knowing his sin, sinful tendency tendencies, asked my mom to let him know early on when he would discipline out of anger because he knew that he had a tendency to be get a little, to become a little hot headed, and he didn't want that unrighteous rage to affect us as kids. He didn't want to provoke us to anger by acting out in anger. And so he talked to my mom about that. And, you know, there were times that my dad acted out in unrighteous anger toward us. You know what my mom would do? She'd just take him aside and say, Dan, didn't we talk about this? You didn't want to raise your children this way. You didn't want to discipline them this way. And my dad was a very intense authority figure and very hard a very hard-shelled, stubborn kind of a man. My mom was just the sweetest, softest person, you know. For her to do that uh, was very challenging. But she was concerned more about his ongoing spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of our family that she was willing to gently reprove him when necessary. My point in all this is that 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 confrontation by my mom would have been a lot more difficult if my dad hadn't told her a long time ago to correct him when he would get in that situation. So what I'm telling you is that it would be helpful for you 
to talk to other people, to say, I want to, to be obedient to Christ. And I know myself. And I need you to be alert alongside of me to point out error when it creeps up. Would you help me? So develop relationships that, that where you can hold people accountable and where they can hold you accountable. Be serious. There's nothing greater. There, there's nothing better for your spiritual growth than to be a part of a local church where sin is hated and where righteousness is exalted. And then number three, church discipline is the next necessary exercise of the local church. Church discipline is necessary. Have you ever heard of a doctor that went door to door and just trying to find out if people had infections? I'm just coming in and see if you guys have any infections that I can take care of. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He stays at his office and people come to him. Because infection has a way of making life miserable for people. It has a way of rearing its ugly head so that it has to be dealt with. And then they come to the doctor for help. And when the infection is diagnosed, the doctor would be foolish to say, you know, I don't really like dealing with that kind of thing. Let's just ignore it and see what happens. So my point is we ought not to be going out and searching for other people's infection. Let's really just start to get into other people's lives and and kind of be a little bit nosy and find out about all the dirt that we can dig up on the person. That's not what I'm suggesting. Sin has a way of coming to the surface, doesn't it? We can hide it for a time, but eventually it's going to come out, just like an infection, it's going to have to be dealt with. At that point, then when we notice it, we need to handle it. If it's not being repented of and turned from, it's not something the person recognizes and struggles with and wants to turn from, we need to handle that by going to that person. And eventually it could come to this third step that we've talked about tonight, which is tell it to the church. Have the church... Note this person, identify him, withdraw from him, and warn him. Galatians 6.1 says, If a brother is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Don't you want to see every single member of our church in sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ and with His people? If so, then then our responsibility is to be very serious about the sin that is being committed. I mean, working together to help other people stay alert in this life down the road of the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for people in this church who are concerned about my soul. You know, who pray for me often and who care enough to point out the inconsistencies that I have, to challenge me when I need to be challenged, and to encourage me as well. And I pray that I would do the same for them. I pray that each of us would do the same for each other, that we would be praying for one another and encouraging one another and challenging, exhorting, warning when necessary. Lord, we don't intend to wound our friends, but we know at times it's necessary in order to get their attention and to draw them back, to rescue them from Your wrath. We're thankful for 
the beautiful organization of Christ's church that we can be a part of. May we take our responsibility very seriously in this battle against sin and Satan and desire to turn us away from what we believe. Give us the strength. Grant us peace, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.